This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today we have with us a very special guest, Sam Lukowitz, who's the co-founder and CEO of Black Wolf a brand that's reinventing the men's grooming category one product at a time with simple, effective, and reliable skincare products. Sam, super excited to have you on the podcast over here. I know I've heard a lot of great things about Black Wolf on the internet, um, so it's awesome to have you on here to chat about your, your high growth, some of the other fun stuff you guys are kicking up over there. And yeah, I know we have a lot to unpack over here, but before we do, um, I'll pass the mic over to you if you want to give a quick little intro about yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about Black Wolf in your own words. Yeah, thanks, Jay. It's good to be here. So Black Wolf is a very interesting project. My brother and I started it a few years ago. We launched in 2018 in September. The basic premise for starting it was that we saw that men's skincare was becoming a thing. Guys were starting to use more products. We were starting to investigate more products, but in looking into the industry, what we realized was there was a lack of an industry market fit. Companies were trying to sell to men and educate them on skincare and convince them to use skincare in the same way that they were working with women for the last hundred years. And what they were basically doing is, we have an all natural organic toner, you should use an all natural organic toner, and we have a better all natural organic toner than the next guy. And a guy looks at them and says, I have no idea what a toner is, I just have breakouts, please help me. And so there's this lack of communication and we saw an opportunity to jump in and be that brand for guys. And we focused on making a skincare brand that would make the process of buying and using skincare itself simple, fun, and engaging for guys in a way that we just were not seeing other brands doing it. So Black Wolf was born, we embraced black, we embraced the masculinity. We didn't want there to be any ambiguity for our customers. And in September of 18, we launched, did 85,000 in sales that year, then we did 1.3, and then we did six last year, and then we uh, are on track to do 20 this year. Oh, wow, that's crazy. That's some awesome growth numbers, and I, I know we're gonna unpack all that. Uh, I'd be curious, before we dive into you know all the stuff you've done on the growth piece, why the skincare market? What like piqued your interest to do some research over there and start kind of uh, maybe carving out your own little section? So there's a few things, the genesis of which was that, I mean, my brother and I were struggling with razor bumps and some other issues because we were young. I mean, I'm only 25 now. We were, I was 22 when we launched and when we first came up with the idea, I was only 20, Alex was only 18. So we were still struggling with those issues back then, piqued our interest in the space. And the fact that the space was so broken in the way we saw it made us excited to dive in. Like anyone who knows me knows that skincare is like the last thing I would have jumped in on. I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm still, I wear hoodies and sweatpants. I mean, that's, that's my attire. I've never been too into fashion, beauty, anything like that. But I saw an opportunity in a space that was so broken, so disconnected from its customers. I saw an opportunity to engage in what I'm actually passionate about, which is significantly boosting customer experience. And I felt the customer experience for men in skincare was horrendous. Yeah, for sure. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's really cool. And I know you just talked about the growth numbers and we're going to jump into that. So speaking of growth, I know there's a couple of different factors over here. You've had the high growth. I know you also have a pretty lean team. How do you get all of this stuff done? How are you growing so fast? Like what what are you and your team focusing on um, that's hitting this like crazy growth? And what's the secret sauce here? 
apart from my brother and I, there's a team of three additional people. So it's five people total running the business until six, seven months ago, it was just me and my brother. And basically what we did is we knew we weren't the best at driving organic sales. We weren't good at organic social media marketing. We didn't have a podcast or a blog to use, to leverage. We were pretty good at managing operations and finances. And we leveraged that for ourselves. So we basically took all of our money and we did a small friends and family round and we did a very small angel round as well. But basically we took all of our money, we put it into Facebook and Google and Instagram and nothing else. We didn't hire a design firm. We didn't hire a marketing firm. We didn't hire content firms. We did everything ourselves. Initially, the ads that crushed it were my brother filming our face wash in the shower, like on his iPhone. So we didn't invest in anything except for ads. And we just scaled those ads as fast as we could. We leveraged cash flow management to be able to be cash flow positive in order to grow. We leveraged credit cards early on, like basically by any means necessary, by the seat of our pants. And we just continued to work. And we basically relied on customer engagement. I did the customer service for the first year and a half. My fiance did it from then until now. And we try to give the best customer experience we can. Our NPS score has always been over 80. And our products are the best possible. And we rely on repeat rates. So you don't need a team of 50 people and every single agency that there is and spending you know a million dollars a month in overhead to build a big business, you can still you can do it using the fundamentals, and that's how we've been able to do it from then till now. Because otherwise, we you know our gross margins would have been too low, and there would have been too much overhead, and we wouldn't have been able to make it. Yeah, for sure, that makes a lot of sense over there. So you know, as you've kind of scaled in terms of growth, are there any things that you've kind of evolved in the business, or are you really kind of like focused like on those things that have helped you? grow so fast from the beginning, like shooting ad videos in the shower with an iPhone and, and all of that stuff. Um, has your strategy like changed in that sense or, or are those things that you've been doing still the key motivators and, and key drivers for your business? So one thing we did uh, that's a little different starting about a year ago, we raised a small angel round. It was strictly strategics and we, we leveraged those partners to be able to help bring the sophistication level up in our business in many different ways. So the family behind Moroccan Oil came on board. They've been helping us with new formulations for products. Nick Sharma was an investor. He's been helping us with marketing, branding, advertising. He's fantastic. You have Austin Reef. He's been helping us with media. You have a few other investors on board who've been helping us understand, you know, pricing strategy and more efficient marketing, landing page optimization. Like there, there's a certain degree of sophistication that came on in that round that we didn't have before. So that was super helpful. The second thing we did is... We searched far and wide, and we found a marketing provider out in California. It's a small team. They're amazing. They help us with ad buying, content creation. They're not incredibly expensive, but they work very, very closely with us. So we have actually, over the years, added a few things here and there. But we've never reverted to going to those like $50,000 a month marketing agencies in New York. It's always lean. It's always leveraging either our network or investors to add different elements to the business. The other thing that we did do, and we can get into this after, is two years ago, when we were at like 30, 40 orders a day, we started going to 3PLs, because we are doing it ourselves, going to 3PLs to see what doing third-party logistics would be like. And the quotes were just obscene. It was super expensive. I had heard from a lot of people that they don't treat you very nicely if you're doing less than 200 orders a day. And my brother, who's passionate about logistics, 
and he's actually fantastic at it. Anything warehousing and logistics he's passionate about. He convinced me, he said, let's open up our own warehouse, let's hire our own team, and we'll do our own operation for Black Wolf. And so we did, and he was able to get the cost of our packages down to you know, a fraction of what any 3PL would charge. The mistake rates were super low, customers were super happy with how fast we'd ship. And so that worked out really, really well, brought our costs down significantly. That was probably the biggest element of sophistication we added over the last years ourselves. That's super awesome. And let's dive into there and, and unpack that a little bit more. Um, I'd be curious as well, as, and I know I'm sure you're going to share a lot more details about that as well. Um, but with that, you know, you doing your own fulfillment and things like that, how do you see that as like a, a part of your, your business? So you've kind of built this other entity over here. Is it just supporting Black Wolf? Are you supporting other brands as well? And kind of how do you see that in terms of also the revenue? Like when you generate revenue over there, if you are working with other brands, does that just all go back into Black Wolf? Are you looking to expand that fulfillment business or talk us through kind of like all the crazy stuff that's going on there and all the cool stuff that's going on there? So what happened initially was in order to get a lease and all kinds of complex reasons in Florida, you had to open up a separate company. So we opened up a separate company entirely. It was called 123 Fulfillment. My brother invested the money and we basically fulfilled four Black Wolf at cost for a little over a year. As the time went on, people started asking me, like, what are you doing for fulfillment? Which 3PL are you using? And I said, well, no, we have our own operation and it's awesome. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. I hate my 3PL. So will you fulfill for me too? And at first we, we said no to everybody, but eventually there were two people who we did say yes to just to try it out. I knew them and that worked out super well. We were able to get their packages out perfectly on time, efficiently, at a very low cost, and they were super happy with it. So Alex and I realized, you know what, we could actually grow this business. And about six months ago, we opened it up to anyone who wants. It's referral only. We don't invest in marketing, salespeople. There's not even a website. And it's grown significantly. We're at about 60, 70 customers, fulfilling thousands and thousands of orders a day out of the company. We have a second location already in Florida and California. So it's becoming its own bona fide business. And it's a business that my brother happens to have a particular passion for. I like it because it it does really well and and grows super quickly. But it's a huge arbitrage opportunity for Black Wolf because Black Wolf now gets very high quality, very cheap fulfillment and keeps our gross margins as high as possible. Because as you know, in D2C, those acquisition costs are just getting higher and it's a constant battle. Basically, like the tide is rising and you have to keep the seawall up as much as possible and margin is your seawall. And every percentage we can grasp, we will because it just gives us more room to market. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense over there. So, you know, looking at customer acquisition as well and having your own like fulfillment channel, how does that let you look at customer acquisition? Do you look at it as an opportunity for you to generate higher margins? Do you look at it more so as an opportunity to hey, we can acquire customers and pay a little bit more than the guy next door to get people in the door and things like that. Or, you know, we can kind of use that to figure out how do we get, you know, afford to maybe do a little bit more customer acquisition up front, knowing that, you know, if we're able to keep customers around for longer, we'll be able to to really have a lot of hyper-efficiency over there. So how do you kind of think about all of that stuff? So everything we do at Black Wolf is for two things. Thing number one that we do, we center everything we do this around, how good the products are, the customer service, the margins, everything, is how do we give the best customer experience? Secondary to that is how much can we spend on marketing? So I'll do anything it takes in order to afford us to spend more on marketing. I love spending on marketing. 
And the reason I do is because it just gives you sustained, continued growth. We are constantly working on things like SEO and partnerships and collabs and uh, influencers to try and help keep it as low as possible. But I always want to scale. Everyone at the company is always, because I'm always calling everybody saying, how fast can we scale? Can we scale more? I love scaling. It makes everything run better. When you scale ads, your sales, your D2C sales go up, obviously. Your awareness goes up. Your social goes up. Your fulfillment operation gets more efficient. Your customer service gets more efficient. Your Amazon sales boost. Everything gets better. And there's just a certain, and we've seen scale up periods and scale down periods. And whenever you're running at peak scale, everything typically for us at least is more efficient. And so we were looking at packaging. We basically wanted to take our packaging costs all in. It was like five bucks. We wanted to bring it down to two. And we knew that we could absorb an extra $3 CPA by doing that and we could just scale faster. And so as long as customer experience remains amazing, we'll do everything we can to then increase that margin to put more into marketing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense over there. And that's a really cool, unique strategy. I don't think, uh, you know, a lot of brands aren't really thinking that way for growth and for scale. I want to circle back to the people piece as well. You know, you do have like a, a small team and I know you've scaled a lot as well. I was reading an article in Morning Brew, I, I think, which you like put a quote in as well, which was like, you know, if you're looking at ROI on people, you have to see what's po- what possible impact they can make on revenue and if the revenue isn't high enough, they can't possibly make up for it. So how does that kind of drive your people strategy and even tying it back to your business objectives? Like, what do you think about all of that stuff over there? So the way I look at it is this. First of all, if you're heavily venture funded, obviously this doesn't apply to you because you ha- you're building a business for some kind of a future return years from now. You're not going to make money. You're just put, you're trying to build that apparatus as fast as you can. So I don't speak to that. But when we're talking about businesses that need to grow and they need to grow profitably, if you're doing $100,000 a year and you bring an employee in that costs $80,000 a year, call them a head of design, okay, chief creative officer. How are they going to find you $80,000 profit on $100,000 in revenue that you weren't incrementally? They're not. It's impossible. You know, even if you bring them in at a million dollars a year in revenue, it's going to be hard for them to get $80,000 in incremental profit. So what people say to themselves is, oh, I need this because it's going to make performance better. Yes, it might make performance better, but ultimately at the end of the day, you're going to lose more money by doing this. And so there's a lot of people I talk to who are not raising $2 million or $5 million who say, I want to have a team of five because I need it. And I say, you're doing $1,000 a day in revenue. You need to be doing $10,000 a day in revenue before that group of five are actually going to be a net benefit to you because they'll just be a net drag. I think people forget that a lot of the time. And so... In our business, what we did, and listen, it's not fun. It's not fun to have to do everything yourself. It's very stressful, but it's necessary. And we did everything ourselves, pretty much from fulfillment and shipping to creative. We built our own website. We designed our own packaging. We sourced our own packaging. And honestly, to be totally honest with you, when we tried to bring in third-party sources for packaging, it was kind of a mess. Like We did a better job ourselves in the end, just by learning the ins and outs. And no one cares as much as you do. So... I think that the one, and you have to look at it in many ways. Let's say you're trying to bring on a CFO, because I think that's one of the things we wish we had brought on earlier. If they can find a way to pay for themselves through managing your cash flow better, managing your finances better, expensing things properly, then yeah, it's worth it. But if they're not going to save you the 150 grand that they're going to charge you a year, then what's the point? 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense over there. I love the way that you're thinking about that. So I want to tie that back a little bit, especially on the marketing side, which I know you said you love doing. So how does that kind of impact your marketing strategy to the extent of, okay, like, you know, our ads are X quality and maybe, you know, there's this other team that's probably spending like $80,000 on having a chief creative officer and maybe, you know, they're able to crank out different types of ads and things like that. Like in terms of your strategy, like when you're looking to put things out and launch things, like does that impact like, hey, like this is like, you know, we feel like 80 to 90% confident in this. So we're just going to go ahead and, and go out and validate it. Like, does that help push your speed to validation? Um, how does that kind of like tie into your your business decisions over there? So the way we've been looking at it. So, I mean, a lot's changed for us in the last six months. We're getting to the point now where a 10% incremental change in something is a million dollars, you know, over the course of a year. So it's investing in better content, better creative. I mean, that's become very important. And I think that in performance marketing, creative is everything now. So that's where we're throwing a lot of our money. Where we're investing, the way we look at risk on creative is we know that not everything's going to hit. And we know the thing that does hit is going to have X amount of impact. And so our model is if you try five different things and one works, usually that pays for itself. If two works, then you're doing really well. And if three out of five things that you do work, you're crushing it. So at the bare minimum, at least one out of five have to work. So our risk profile is a little bit more lenient. And we're just trying to try a lot of different things. Other way we look at it is if we're trying something we've never done before, our risk tolerance is really high because it's worth it to find out if that works. So for instance, UGC ads, right? We've not in the past had huge success with UGC style ads, just not an ad that works for us. So if you're looking at now moving ads onto TikTok, which we have been, maybe UGC works there. So we'll just try a bunch of things on TikTok with UGC. It might work, it might not work, but if it does work, for the chance that it does work, it's worth taking the risk. We don't mind losing the money on doing it. Because when you do unlock something that crushes, you know, it pays for everything in the past that hasn't. At a certain I would not recommend doing that to people who are at like 80 grand in sales a year, for instance. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, the margins that you talked about as well in terms of like impact as you scale, your revenue increases, you know, 10% is a different story at $10 million than it is as at $10,000. Um, and so that makes a lot of sense over there. So let's turn back the clock a little bit on validating the product. I know you guys are pretty relatively newish into the space in terms of, you know, being in business for three years. How did you kind of go about validating Black Wolf to say like, hey, like, not only have we done our research and figured out there's a problem over here and, and we've got to educate people and, and do all of that stuff, but now we actually have customers and people that are interested in that. How did you go about validating the idea um, against like your own research? So it's funny, what our research showed us was a problem. It did not show us what the path forward to a solution would be. It never does. We actually don't do any research usually. We, we, go off of gut. My brother and I, we, does it pass our smell test? If it does, then it's a product that we feel comfortable putting out. Because what else are we supposed to do? Especially in the early days, like we can't conduct huge surveys. If you're conducting a survey of 100 people, you're not getting accurate data anyways. So what are we to do? We said, okay, let's build the best product we can. We built three to start. We built a face wash, a moisturizer, and a razor bump cream aftershave combo product. It's an awesome product. And what we did is we said, 
okay, are these the best possible products we can make? We went to the formulators and we said, you know, we're looking to make this line of products. And they sat us down and they said, okay, do you want marketing amounts of all these ingredients, the active ingredients, which is basically nothing and you can say it's in there legally, or do you want efficacy amounts? Do you want us to throw the kitchen sink at these things? Put everything we can into them. And I said, yeah, let's go, let's throw the kitchen sink at it. I want the best product on the market because if we're gonna be successful, the best way we can do this is by making the best product. And if customers are gonna trust us by taking their hard-earned money and paying for our products, we should be giving them a good product. And so that's what we did. It took us like a year of development, mostly because we didn't know what we were doing. It takes us three months now to make a product. But when we launched it initially on ads, the validation was, would people buy it at all? Would anyone convert? And then only three, four months later, are people going to start coming back? And so initially we launched it. We were able to convert people at very low CPAs. So that was a good sign initially. Conversion rate was very high. We were not crafty marketers. We did not have a huge you know, pre-order list. We did not have a huge mailing list launching it. We just launched kind of bare and just started buying Facebook ads build our own website, designed our own packaging. Hopefully people were into it. And it's not the most efficient way. I don't necessarily advise people do it the way we did it. We did it the hard way. But then month three, four, five, and we started seeing people reorder the product. And we realized, okay, people obviously like this. In doing customer service that entire time, from talking to all these guys, I've been able to discern what the issues are. Where are the pain points? Where are the pain points with what we've already put out? And what are the pain points in general for them with their own skin, with other products? that they feel they need served. Like the most famous case of this was guys would reach out to us and say, I have oily skin, what do I buy? And we were thinking, wait, our first products are really made for oily skin. And we realized they weren't, aware. like even if they saw a product that said oil control on it, it didn't matter. So we built an oily skin bundle and we actually launched a dry skin bundle. We knew the dry skin bundle wouldn't sell that much because most guys have oily skin. But by having that contrast, it was super clear that the oily skin was for oily skin. We launched that, we stopped getting questions about it. People just bought it. So it's just through iterating and talking to our customers and learning, we've been able to figure out exactly what they want. And we've been able to continue like that. What you're gonna see from us in the next year is an enormous expansion of our product line offering. And all of it's been built from customer insights and our own insights. That's awesome. That's really incredible. Um, so, you know, on that customer experience note, and I know you said you're, you're really into that stuff. So when you see, customer feedback coming in, when you're looking to solve for it, are you looking to solve for it more so from, hey, like we'll have better customer service, like we'll have more reps or, or more people that we'll, we'll bring on to answer these questions? Or is it really kind of this interesting, and I think that's probably what you're going to answer with, this interesting product-led growth approach on a direct-to-consumer brand, which is usually reserved for software people, but you've kind of taken that, that same approach to how you're, you're growing your product, your brand, and even uh, optimizing your product pages. Yeah, everything's iterated through customer feedback. We don't get as many customer service messages as you'd think. In fact, we've been able to get by with one or two agents since the beginning. Doesn't matter if we're doing thousands of orders a day because we don't get that many complaints just because we've put so much time and effort in making sure a few things happen. One is it ships fast. Two is the bottles don't explode. I mean, it happens, but very, very rarely. Three is stability of product, making sure it doesn't separate. And then four is just making sure it's a good product. That eliminates 80% of the customer service inquiries you'd get, you know? And there's a few things that have come up over time. You know, we used to have a foreign transaction charge that was just there. We weren't even aware of it. We got rid of that. You know, little things have just significantly eaten away at the amount of messages we get. 
And so what we really focus on now is customers saying, you know, I wish you did X or I wish we had this. And they'll tell you, I mean, they'll reach out to you and say, like, why don't you have this product? I'm confused. And we iterate based on that a lot of the time. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense over there. It sounds very familiar. You know, my, my background's in like B2B marketing. So it sounds very familiar to those product feedback loops that you kind of have over there for software. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. So I know we're coming close to the end of the podcast over here. So as we kind of wrap up over here, I'd love to hear from you. You know, you've worked on your D2C brand over here. You have fulfillment now. So you're the founder of of two companies already. And I'm sure you'll probably have some more brands under your belt in the next 10 years. What's some advice you would give to other founders that are out there, even marketers or or customer experience people um, that are interested in improving or growing or building a direct-to-consumer brand? I I think this would probably apply to any business. One is, my rule of life is always be curious. If you, the minute you stop being curious is sort of the minute you stop moving. You should always try to learn and better yourself. It doesn't mean you're a perfectionist. It just means that you should always be growing as a person. And if you don't know something, it's an opportunity to learn something new. So don't pretend that you know everything. The other one is, is don't give up. I always heard this, it kind of felt like a BS line to me. I've always been told that from people who are successful, people I knew for years, right? But it's really true. I mean, I've, I've come to probably at least four or five instances from starting this business where it was like a near-death experience, where we felt like this business is going to just fail in the next month, or it's not going to get any traction constantly. And you just got to power through it. Like, you have no other choice. And we really felt like we didn't have another choice. But even if you do, you have to just keep going. You can never give up because ultimately you don't know what's going to be on the other side of it. And as long as you're being responsible, I think there are, there are definitely times where you need to recognize that a project is not worth pursuing and it's a mistake and it's you know, served its purpose and you don't want to then make things worse by going deeper and deeper. But I think that if you really believe in something, you can't let you know, adversity turn you away. If your premise was that this is a company or this is a project or this is something that, that's going to work and something gets in your way, whether it's cash flow, whether it's expenses, whether it's an issue with the business, whatever it is, that can't be the reason that you stop. It can't be the reason that you, that you then turn away and abandon what you were you know, so dedicated to for all that time. I think those two things are super important. And then I think the third thing is twofold. You need a really good support system. Mine is my fiance, my brother too. And those are people who are sort of going to stick with you through thick and thin. No matter how bad stuff gets, they'll be there encouraging you to keep pushing on. You need that. It's super crucial. And the second is advisors or investors who are going to be there to give you honest advice and not just say what you're doing is great, but actually tell you if what you're doing is wrong or if you need to change course. I have a few investors like that. They're fantastic people. I rely on them heavily. They're the people who give me a reality check when I need one. I think those four things are the keys to being successful. And I think they're the keys that I live by and I will continue to live by.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's great advice for everyone that's listening out there. Well, Sam, it's been an awesome podcast over here. I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you, talk about growth, talk about customer experience, and just really learn about your unique approach to building a business and building a brand over here. Before we wrap up, I'm going to pass the mic over to you one last time. Tell us a little bit, whatever you can share, uh, what's kind of next for Black Wolf and uh, where can people connect with you or learn more about Black Wolf, potentially even buy some product as well? Well, you can go to blackwolfnation.com to get some product. Highly recommend it, obviously. I spend most of my time on social, if I'm ever on social, on Twitter. It's where I met most of the people I deal with. It's actually a great place for networking. Highly recommend it if you're an entrepreneur and not on Twitter. You should be on Twitter. And like one thing I always try to tell people, and the best thing to do, is try to m- surround yourself with really good people. Do not surround yourself with garbage people. Like it's, it's not a polite thing to say, but I would not surround myself with bad people. They're going to bring you down and they're going to lower your standard for yourself. Surround yourself with people who have integrity and who are good people. I'm not talking about smart or not smart. I'm talking about people who have a code of morals and ethics where they control themselves. Good people. That's the most important thing. That's awesome advice. Um, really appreciate you sharing that as well. Well, Sam, it's been an awesome episode of the podcast. Uh, really appreciate you coming on here and, and dropping all your knowledge on all of us that are listening. I'm sure the audience will have found something really cool to latch on to. Um, if you enjoyed this episode of the DTC pod, just drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. <laughs>